Welcome, welcome, welcome into a seminarian and friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, scripture, the church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, the seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. Today's question is why the Old Testament never seemed to explicitly address or condemn polygamy. Polygamy being the marriage of primarily one man to multiple women, but it could also mean one woman to multiple men. The New Testament emphasizes the immorality of polygamy in a few places, but the Old Testament goes about it in a different way. So let me open with first touching on some hermeneutics, because this question at its core is a question about hermeneutics. Now when I say hermeneutics, or which hermeneutic we employ when reading a text, especially the Bible, but any text uh, you use hermeneutics for, when I say that I'm referring to techniques we use to interpret a text. So by that I don't mean that we can approach a text, especially the Bible, and interpret it however we want to. And this principle is true about all kinds of texts. So it's true about medication instructions or letters between lovers or car owners manuals and it's especially true about the Bible which seems to be under fire today but it's true about the Bible as well. When authors write their thoughts they're communicating a message and that message depends on the accurate recounting of their meaning. When approaching the Bible, it is excruciatingly, vitally important to read it this way, understanding that the author of scripture used human language to convey a message, making the task of interpretation not to figure out what we want it to say, but to decode what the message God is trying to communicate or the author of scripture is trying to communicate to us for our understanding and practice. In other words, right now in our culture, we are so obsessed with the notion that we can approach texts, whatever it is, and decide for ourselves what it means. It's kind of called reader response. And we think that way because there's this notion that objective truth doesn't exist or that texts and and messages don't convey objective meaning. And that's just simply not true. My point in bringing up the, you know, the medication bottles is that the hermeneutic we use to read that text is greatly different from when we try to put together these philosophical arguments about why we don't have to trust and believe the Bible as it is. This is culture speaking, of course, but, but they don't even believe it themselves because you know, you read a, a medication prescription and it tells you, take this two pills every two hours or whatever the 
example is. And you take that to mean, oh, the person who created this medicine has done the research to tell me that the best way to use this product is to follow these instructions. And they actually mean for me to take what they say to be what they mean and then apply it. Now, it's a... I mean, we can get into how we got here and why we got here and why people say that that is supposed to be a different hermeneutic from how we relate to, you know, matters of religion and, and whatnot. But my point is, when we read texts, the assumption and the truth is that the person who wrote that is trying to convey meaning to the person who reads it and that is true in every text that we read and it's true about the bible so yes granted there there were approximately 40 humans over a lot of centuries who wrote the 66 books of the bible but one thing that's really important to point out however is that they all of these authors were governed and inspired by the one god who is the ultimate author of the unified story of his revelation. And so any other starting point other than believing and confessing that these books are the revelation of the living God and are the inspired, infallible, inerrant, clear, and sufficient word of God is the wrong starting place and will result inaccurately. Uh, so that's just something we need to understand from the get-go when we write messages on facebook over text on our to-do list whatever it is we are using means to communicate a message and the message is decided by and dictated by the author not the reader so god has a message that he wants to convey and communicate to humanity. And that is what the text means, not whatever we try to say it. In the same way that the manufacturers of a drug have a message that they get to choose, that they dictate and they communicate, and we as the readers of that do not get to choose what they meant with the words that they chose. Okay. So now that that hermeneutic principle stands, we can get a little more specific. The second hermeneutic principle I want to discuss next is canonicity. Now this is, like I said, more specific to scripture. So we're, we're past my diatribe about medication bottles and, and now we're focusing on the Bible. The 66 books of the Bible have been canonized and if you want more information on that i did a podcast on it a few weeks ago to help bring clarity to how these and not other books became known as the canon canon being standard of the bible when this happened they put together the books in a set order and there's there's debate among theologians and scholars about what that right canon list is. And if you're curious about my opinion on that, I make an argument uh, in that other podcast. But I'm not going to spend time today on that. 
what we need to know is that whatever the objectively best list is, we can surmise two things. First, the chroniclers of the Bible, so those who, who put together the books, the 66 books, assumed that people would read the scriptures like a book from beginning to end. And because of that, they put some things in front of others so that readers would read the later in light of the former. Let me illustrate that so that you're tracking with me. Think back to high school. You learned algebra before you learned calculus because your ability to understand calculus depended on your ability to understand algebra. Your being in calculus assumed your competency with algebra. The biblical canon is similar. If you're familiar with this podcast, you've heard me harp on the verse Genesis 3.15, which reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise this heel. This verse is what I've called the thesis of the Bible. But you can kind of think, it, think of it like learning to count in kindergarten. Before we even get to algebra, we have to learn numbers and how to count and and then we have to learn how to add and then multiply and divide and then we learn what a function is in algebra and we learn what slope is and only after you learn about functions and slope can you enter calculus and talk about derivatives and integrals. So the same thing is with the Bible. Genesis 3.15 is basic arithmetic, if you want to keep that metaphor, and after that, we keep adding on that foundation to understand the rest of scripture. It's the very foundation, like I said, on which everything else is built, and the very interpretive key for understanding the rest of the canon. So readers read scripture in light of the promise God gave in Genesis Genesis 3.15. And in fact, this is not the only example of this technique, sometimes called intertextuality, used within scripture. Another famous example is found in the two chapters, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where God gives lists of covenant blessings for obedience and covenant curses for disobedience. And then subsequent authors once the Israelites enter the promised land and possess it for centuries, these authors assume familiarity with and understanding of these two passages. In fact, the prophets can be accurately described as covenant enforcers because they continually remind the people of these texts and interpret the present circumstances in light of them. So that's hermeneutic principle Number two, first, the Bible, like all texts, have objective meanings dictated and given by the authors, and it's our job not to insert meaning or put our meaning into the text, but to take, bring it out and understand what the author is telling us. Principle number one is that. Principle number two is that when you read the canon, when you read scripture, every moment is pointing back to a former text or verse or passage 
and pointing forward to a next. So there's this interconnectedness, this intertextuality within scripture. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to miss a lot of what the authors are assuming when writing their objective message. But what does all of that have to do with today's question of polygamy in the Old Testament? Well, this is the technique that I will be using to answer that question, and I wanted to demonstrate it so that it can be reapplied throughout Scripture. One of the consequences of the biblical authors writing the canon this way is that readers do not always see immediate affirmation or refutation of assumptions or interpretations. More than that, though, the authors were recording actual stories of real human beings who lived lives like you and me. In other words, the quality of people's actions was often not revealed until later when the fullness of the results manifested. This is the beauty and wisdom of God's word and sovereign plan in history working together. Let me give you an example. Close your eyes. Let's say a high school junior named Mark decided to skip class one day. His parents both leave for work early and return after school, so they would never know if he had attended or not. He stayed at home, slept in, played some video games, and had a great day of just goofing off. When his parents returned, they asked how his day was, to which he replied that it was great, to their pleasant surprise. They pressed further, asking what had made the day so good, and what he had learned in school. He dodged the question as well as he could and gave what seemed to him an innocuous white lie. His parents seemed to him to be placated, so he went away content and just watched some TV the rest of the evening. Now I'm going to pause there and point out that if the story ended here, we would assume that it was a great decision to skip school. He had a good time, his parents were none the wiser, right? But the story just given is not an isolated incident. It happens within the context of a greater story, which is within the context of a greater story and a greater context, and, and it, it keeps going out. So let's dive back into the story. The next day, Mark went to school, still riding the high of the day before, and he began thinking about the next time he would skip. He decided on the same day the next week, so he made a note in his planner and went along with his week. When the day came, he did the same thing he had. He slept in, made himself some waffles this time. He played video games until he decided to go outside and shoot some hoops while all those poor, unfortunate souls were still inside in school. When his parents got back that night, they asked him, how did your math test go today? Mark froze his math test. He had forgotten all about it and he didn't take it. He tried to squeak out an answer to his parents, but by that time, his parents had caught him. His math teacher, after noticing that Mark was not there to take his test a week after a previous unexcused absence, had dropped a call to his parents. The gig was up. The ruse was out. They finally found him. He failed his math test, was grounded for two weeks, 
And he lost the trust of his parents, who had reminded him that they held him to a higher standard than that. That standard being a condemnation or a disapproval of both skipping school and lying. Okay, so that's the story. Mark skipped school and got in trouble for it. Now, in this scenario, we learn a lot about interpreting scripture. Life is not a simple transactional endeavor, and we grant that. I wrote that story uh, for the purpose of illustrating this, but life is not that cut and dry. And the biblical authors understand that and portray that, but because they know that they're writing things for people to read. They gave us tools to understand and see what they're doing in communicating their message. So let's analyze this case study before diving into the word. First, we learn that Mark's parents had lined out their expectation for his conduct at a prior point before the story. When they were laying down their sentence of a two-week grounding to Mark, they reminded him of their rules against skipping school and lying. So here we see intertextuality, if you want to call it that, within the context of a person's life. His parents had told them, don't skip school, don't lie. And so they had the authority to point back to that in this instance and say, you broke these rules, which means that your decision was not wise. Second, we see in the consequences of his actions that his decision did not benefit him. His day may have been enjoyable, his two days, in fact, may have been enjoyable, but he failed his test because he skipped school and he got grounded and he lost the trust of his parents. Now those consequences reveal that it was in fact unwise to skip school because generally speaking, Wise living leads to prosperity, while unwise living leads to the opposite of that. Now, caution, please hear me say this. Life is messy, and I'm painting with a broad stroke here, and there are a lot of examples in scripture to fight against this reductionistic, simplistic thinking of, if I do good, I will get good, and if I do bad, I will get bad. If you want a specific example, read Job, but also read Ecclesiastes. So I want to caution, but for the sake of this exercise and this example, we see that the hurt and frustration Mark is now experiencing is a direct result of his unwise decision, and it reveals to the reader that his decision was wrong without ever having to come out and say to you, and this was a bad idea. So third, his initial success in skipping class blinded him to the potential dangers that lay ahead and made it easier for him to continue toward his demise. Now again, this is, that's probably a little dramatic, um, but I hope you're seeing my point. And if you really want to analyze that little anecdote more, you could probably come up with more literary devices that I used intentionally or unintentionally 
to bring out my point of intertextuality. But we're not going to do that now because the Bible is more pressing. So I want to apply these techniques to a biblical text. With one more comment before we get started. I know you're at the edge of your seat. The scope of both the scriptures and God's mercy are infinitely greater than the story I just gave you. We cannot reach the depths of scripture ever, but especially not as quickly as easily as we did and can with this anecdote that I wrote. There's always more to learn in scripture. There's, there are always deeper and more connections within the canon to explore. Plus, we believe that in God's redemptive plan, in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, none of our mistakes is beyond forgiveness and redemption, but are in God's immeasurable wisdom and sovereignty actually used by him so that they end up for our benefit and his glory. It's similar to if the above story had continued and Mark's mistake actually taught him about the value of hard work and he pushed himself to be a better student after that and got into college and got a great job and got a great wife and great family and yada yada yada. Now, that's a that human illustration like that or or whatever story that I could have written other than that. It's super hollow, super trite, and again, it, it perpetuates the notion that doing the right things always will give me a good life, which the Bible pushes back against and which experience itself tells us is not true. But my point is that God's universal work to redeem all of creation through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ is neither hollow nor trite, but beautiful and glorious. So that seems to me to be a good segue uh, into the biblical text. So let's apply these principles together. I'm going to be in Genesis starting in chapter 20. Nine. So if you want to open your Bible up and read with me, that would be great. Uh, although this is not necessarily the time for us to dive as deeply as we can into this text, but more an example to help you see what I'm talking about and to answer the question of why the Old Testament does in fact push say that that polygamy is is not god's design in other words i would encourage you to go deeper than we do in this podcast on your own time but that said we're turning to genesis 29 and in that chapter in the beginning of the chapter we learn that jacob the grandson of abraham who is also the child of promise, whom God chose to carry the seed of Abraham. And the seed of Abraham is the seed we read about in Genesis 3.15, the Messiah, Jesus. We see that Jacob, who's the carrier of that seed, married both Rachel and Leah. Now, again, like I said, the biblical storyline is complicated, messy, complex, and this story... As a perfect example of that, it is complicated 
and it starts out not great because Rachel's and Leah's dad deceived Jacob so that he ended up marrying the two of both of them because of of Laban's sin but my my point is and the fact is that Jacob had two wives which was a practice common in the ancient world that did not conform to God's original vision for humanity so when we read it we're gonna see why God's original vision for humanity was not polygamy so starting in verse 30 we read this so Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years when the Lord saw that Leah was hated he opened her womb but Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she, for she said because the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me she conceived again and bore a son and said because the Lord has heard that I am hated he has given me this son also she called his name Simeon and again she conceived and bore a son and said now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons therefore his name was called Levi and she conceived again and bore a son and said this time I will praise the Lord therefore she called his name Judah then she ceased bearing when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children she envied her sister she said to Jacob give me children or I shall die Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb then she said here's my servant Belia go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son then Rachel said God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son therefore she called his name Dan Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore, bore Jacob a second son then Rachel said with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed so she called his name Naphtali when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said good fortune has come so she called his name Gad Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son and Leah said happy am I for women have called me happy so she called his name Asher in the days of the wheat harvest Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah then Rachel said to Leah please give me some of your son's mandrakes but she said to her is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband would you take away my son's mandrakes also Rachel said then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes when Jacob came from the field in the evening Leah went out to meet him and said you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes so he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son Leah said God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband so she called his name Issachar and Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son 
Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. What I want to pull out from that story is the brokenness. There was heartache, there was rivalry, there was envy. All of these relationships were strained. They, they settled on bartering with mandrakes for time with their husband and, and affection. There was strife, I may have said that already. There was even a third and a fourth woman thrown into the mix just for childbearing purposes and legacy purposes and the attempt to, to get Jacob to offer his affections to one or the other. This is hardly the picture of marriage we got in Genesis 2 when Adam first laid his eyes upon Eve and rejoiced and sang a song. And that's not even to mention the books that had yet to be written at the time, like the Song of Songs and Ephesians that celebrate marriage so highly. So the story continues and brokenness continues to abound. And yes, not all of it is because Jacob wed two women and then had two additional concubines. But that didn't help. That added to it. So as readers, we're supposed to recognize that this strife is not what God designed to happen in the marriage relationship through the brokenness, the consequences of their actions revealing God's disposition toward the behavior. So yes, that's, that's just an example. And given the length of the Bible, it's very difficult to give an example that incorporates all of what I just talked about. It's much easier to write a short, simple little anecdote and pull out these nuggets than entering into the messiness of, of life. Even still, we can apply what we just discussed in this story because we see that God disapproves of polygamy because we see that as the story progresses, it reaps messy, broken fruit. We can also compare this passage to the Genesis 2 account I just mentioned and see that the marriage pictures differ greatly. Or we can look at Genesis 4.23, which is the record of Lamech, who is the first recorded instance of polygamy in scripture and is a total self-absorbed jerk. So we can take all of these texts that had come before and compare them to what's happening now. Finally, as the canon progresses and we get to places later that elevate monogamous marriage as the ideal, we're supposed to read that explicit information back into stories like Rachel and Leah and see that God's prescription for marriage is one man and one woman. So the Old Testament does, in fact, reject polygamy and upholds monogamous, one-man, one-woman marriage 
as the ideal, as the design by God. And then, like I said, that that's carried throughout the rest of the biblical storyline. So there's the answer. And I hope that the interpretive principles we talked about are helpful to you as you study God's word, equipping you to mine the treasures of his message regarding all kinds of topics and questions for yourself by reading canonically and keeping an eye out for important details that foreshadow future passages and reflect on prior passages. Let me know if you have any questions and I hope that you keep diving into the word and if uh, you don't know the Lord Jesus, then uh, my parting thoughts to you would be the king of the world has come and has reclaimed his rightful reign through his death, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he offers entrance into his eternal kingdom of joy and glory if you believe and turn to him. So friends, I pray that you do. I pray that you are reconciled to God today, this very day, because today is the day of salvation. Uh, Soli Deo Gloria.